0: Hello, hello, hello. You are listening to The Gorman Limit. I am your host, Neil Gorman, a professor, a psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst, and somebody who is clearly narcissistic enough to name his podcast The Gorman Limit. How are you doing? I don't know what you're thinking in response to that. I don't know if you're saying something in response to it, but wherever you are, whatever it is that you're doing, I hope that you're making glorious mistakes and having fun as you do so. It has been a little bit of time since I have done an episode of The Gourmet For a while, I was really good. I was getting an episode out every single week on Wednesdays. And I, I had stuck to that kind of schedule for a number of weeks. I was doing good. And then that came to an end. And what I want to do here now at the start of this episode, episode 008, is just kind of quickly make an announcement about why that is. And I want to make this announcement for several reasons. One is that, you know, I feel bad that I don't release the podcast more regularly. Uh, But more importantly than that, I had this really exciting thing happen to me. And the really exciting thing that happened to me, that's why I have not been able to release the podcast. And I want to tell you about that. I want to tell you about this exciting thing that has happened to me. Uh, The exciting thing that has happened is that my partner and I have had our second child. We are now a household of four. There's me, there's my partner, our almost two-year-old child, and now a newborn. There's four of us. And, you know, having a new baby is a really crazy thing. <laughs> you know, when you have a baby, your your life is turned inside out and upside down. Uh, and we did that. We've had, you know, a baby. And at the same time, we have an almost two-year-old. So having an almost two-year-old is is another thing which can be a little bit of pandemonium inducing as well and our lives the lives of me and my partner are really jam-packed busy and you know ultra crazy there's, there's just a lot happening all the time uh, and you know y- you didn't ask for this but i'm going to tell you anyways going to give you just a little slice a description of just a little bit of the crazy because this is stuff that happens pretty regularly now so this happened i don't remember what day it was a couple of days back my partner and me, were doing things, you know, I'm with our our almost two-year-old kid, and he has decided that what he wants to do is one of his favorite things, which is uh, pull this kind of um, thing that he stands on. It's like a, a step laddery thing over to our sink in our kitchen, and what he wants me to do is he wants me to put dish soap in the sink and then put some water in the sink and make suds. He loves that. He loves that so much. He, it's a really fun thing. He will be amused with suds in the sink for... A super long time, which is great. Uh, we we use that to our advantage on a lot of occasions. So he wants me to do that. So we we get that set up. You know, dish soap in the sink, run the water, make the suds, give him a spatula and some bowls, some measuring cups. He is happy. And my partner says to me, "Hey, well, he's doing that. Would you mind taking the baby, and I'll go grab a shower?" And I'm like, "Cool, yeah, I got it, no problem." So I grab the baby. I'm holding the baby. And my kid's playing, the kid, oldest kid is playing in the sink. My partner goes up to take a shower. And, you know, after she's up there a couple minutes, the shower has turned on, a couple of things happen. First thing that happens is that my almost two-year-old tells me, hey, you know, the, the level of suds in the sink, it's gone down. I'd like some more. And so I'm like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll try to do that. So I'm trying to like hold the baby and do the make more suds thing. And the baby starts to cry because I, I think the baby was gassy or something like that. So now the baby's crying and the almost two-year-old wants more suds in the sink. So I, I'm kind of trying to do both of these things. The almost two-year-old wants more attention on the suds and the baby, I, I don't know what the baby wants, but the baby is crying. So the suds situation gets somewhat resolved. And now the two, almost two-year-old is, has forgotten about the suds because the baby is crying so much. And the almost two-year-old kid, he doesn't like it when the baby cries. And, and it's not that he doesn't like it because he's like annoyed that the baby is crying. That's not what I'm trying to describe here. What, what actually happens is he gets distressed when the baby cries. Like he thinks, oh my gosh, the baby's crying. The baby must be hurt. Somebody help the baby. That That's kind of what he's communicated to us anyway. So he sees the baby's crying and now he's like, you know, dad, the baby's crying. Help the baby. And I'm like... I am holding the baby and I'm trying to help the baby. I'll put the baby up on my shoulder and I will try to burp the baby because I think the problem is that he's got gas and maybe that'll help. So I'm doing that and the baby is still crying and the almost two year old is getting more upset. And as I'm trying to burp the baby, the baby decides to like spit up. And there's, you know, when you have a baby and the baby spit up, spits up, there's levels of this. There's the little bit of spit up, the normal bit of spit up, and then there is the like super-sized triple XL kind of spit up. I had that kind in this particular instance. Lots of spit up going on. So that happens and now the baby's spitting up and crying and the almost two year old is seeing this. And now he's he's gone from being distressed to being like just like freaked out. He does not like what he's seeing. So he's he's freaked out. He's gonna he starts to cry a little bit. Baby's crying. This is pandemonium, right? And and this goes on and you know I have to clean myself up, clean the baby up, keep the almost two-year-old from losing his mind. This is life at this point for me. This is just like a couple of moments in what my life is like now. And uh I don't know if you can hear this in my voice. I'm I'm saying I'm describing this instance and while it might sound as though I'm describing something which is I guess atrocious or awful, I kind of don't feel that way because even though this is <laughs> crazy hard and I am tired a lot and I don't have energy it's hard for me to do a lot of the things that I enjoy doing, like making this podcast, like exercising. I haven't exercised in quite a few weeks now. Um, life is actually really good right now. It is glorious. I'm having a great time. I, would, Will I be happy when it comes to an end? Probably, yeah. I'll, I'll like it when I get to the next phase um, and my my infant becomes somewhat more self-reliant and my almost two-year-old continues to grow and becomes even more self-reliant and Maybe I'll get more more time and energy. I'll start sleeping more regularly. I'll I'll enjoy that. But where I'm at right now is actually pretty great. It's um it's weird. I, I find that this is my life, and it seems like other people I know have this issue a lot as well. The the things that make our lives difficult or hard or or crazy, they're the things that we really want a lot. You know, I, I wanted my kids. <laughs> I, I want my kids. I want to have a life which is full of things like teaching and making podcasts for people to listen to. I want this stuff. And yes, I am bonkers, nuts, crazy, busy, (laughs) stressed out sometimes, but it's life is really, really good actually, you know? And I I guess I just kind of wanted to say that. That's that's why I haven't made a podcast in quite a few weeks. Now, you know. So having said that, what am I going to talk about next? Um, Let me tell you the plan for today's episode of The Gorman Limit. Uh, Today, what I want to talk about the topic, the focus of this particular episode, episode 008, is going to be being non-defensive. And I wanted to talk about this because generally, I think that people like the idea of being non-defensive. Being non-defensive is something that, generally speaking, people want to do. It's something they want to be better at. Um, And you know, I, I, if if I'm a good example, my life is a good example, and I, I think it's reasonable enough to assume that it is, there are times where being non-defensive is easier and something that one might be kind of even good at, and there are times where it is hard or harder than it is normally. And to to as I talk about non-defensiveness on today's episode, what I'm going to try to do is, you know, comment on it generally, but in addition to that, I want to tell you a story, a true story, about a time from earlier in my life and career where I responded non defensively to somebody who was being actually pretty aggressive with me. Uh, There's there this instance where I was in a situation, somebody got aggressive. And when people get aggressive, a lot of times the sort of go to move is to become defensive. But in this story, I'm going to make myself look, I guess, fairly good and talk about uh, this is a time where I didn't do that, where I didn't get defensive in response to somebody getting aggressive. So if that's something that you're interested in hearing about, I hope that you'll stick around. I'm going to play a little bit of transition music now. And when we come back, I will get started with setting this up, talking more about non-defensiveness. So we are back, and I'm going to try to tell you a story, and as I tell you the story, cover all of the bases that you should probably cover when you tell a story on a podcast. What are those bases? Those bases are the who, what, when, where, why kinds of questions. And so my hope is that by the time the story is done, you will understand all of those things. So let's start with the easy stuff, the when and the where. So this story takes place at an earlier stage of my career. At this stage, I am a teacher. I am teaching in a school, and it's not a normal school. It's teaching in a, a what's called a therapeutic day school or what might be called an alternative school. Uh, the school that I'm teaching at is actually situated inside of a residential treatment program. So what happens, the kind of students that I get, let me kind of give you a, a sense of where they come from. The students that I have are kids, teenagers, who have had some kind of run-in with the law, and they went through the court system, the juvenile justice system, and a judge decided to give the kid some options. The judge said, hey, kid, you can decide to go into the Department of Corrections and you know be on probation, maybe be incarcerated for a little bit, And then, you know, come out and have to still be on probation for a while. And we'll kind of see what happens. That's option one. Option two is that you could go into this kind of like treatment program, which will hopefully, you know, help you out in some way. And if you do that, that means, one, that you don't have to be incarcerated, and two, that your probation might be a shorter probation. And so a lot of kids decided to kind of like take that option. I don't think they would have decided to go to this program just for funsies or because it's a good idea or something. I think they were doing it because it, you know, was good for them because it gave them other things that they wanted, i.e. not being locked up and shorter probation. So that's the kind of kids that I have in this program. Well, when they they get into a residential program, you know, they, they can't just like not be in school. They have to go to school while they're in this program. And the school that I teach in, is situated inside the facility where these, these kids are getting the treatment that they're getting, okay? So that's the kind of kid that I'm dealing with here. Now it's probably not too much of a stretch for me to say that a bunch of the kids that I was teaching in this facility, in this program, really didn't care all that much about school at all. School was, I mean, they had lives that I think were difficult for so many different reasons. And they were concerned with other things. They they were not usually that concerned with school. Part There's probably, I mean, so many reasons for this. Part of the reason they were probably not that concerned with school is that I, I suspect that if they would have been whatever was home for them, the options for school might not have been that great. And or they could have even been outright dangerous for all I know. So that's that's one thing. And, you know, when you when you come from an environment like that, you know, school becomes sort of pretty far down in the list of priorities. Additionally, I think that a lot of these kids came from families that were, you know, hurting, struggling socioeconomically. They didn't have a lot of money and stuff. So having money to take care of your basic needs became something which was a very pressing going concern at a very young age. You know, something a lot of these kids were dealing with. So a lot of them just is school not that important to them. So they would go to school, but they wouldn't you know, it's it's not like they really wanted to to try hard when they were there. No, that's not all of them, mind you. There were some of them who did want to try hard, some of them who, who really found school, I don't know, interesting or rewarding. But there was also a pretty significant number that didn't, is kind of what I'm trying to get at here. So this is where I'm teaching during this particular story. And you kind of also have a sense of the kind of kid that I would have been teaching from that, that little bit of a description. And this happens quite a few years back at this point. So let me set this up for you. I'm a history teacher. I teach history. I'm just kind of like a general social studies teacher, actually. So I taught history. I think I taught psychology, sociology, classes like that. Those are the things that I taught in this particular therapeutic day school. And, you know, one day I remember I I started a class, kids came in, I I got them started doing the normal routine thing that I, I did when I started class, which was usually having, there'd be some some notes that I wanted them to take down from the board, and then I would do things with those notes a little bit later. It was a good way to kind of get kids to sit down and start doing something right away. That was what I did. So kids come in. They they talk for a little bit. Bell rings. I'm like, okay, there's notes up on the board. Start copying down the notes. And in about 15 minutes, we're going to start going through these and doing my, my spiel. And some kids do that. They start copying down the notes, no problem. And some kids don't. Some kids are like, mm-mm. They're just kind of like sitting there. And they're looking bored. Some kids just check right out and go to sleep. And uh, usually what would happen if a kid went to sleep is I would just, at the end of every class, what I would do is we had this um, kind of way of of taking attendance, which we did at the end of class, not at the beginning. And the way it would work is we'd say like basically the kid was there and we would basically then kind of have to say whether or not they were engaged or disengaged. That's kind of what we are expected to do. And then, you know, I think what happened after that is uh, there'd be a caseworker who would review the kid's attendance at some point in the future. And if there was a lot of like disengaged, I assume that the caseworker would probably say something to the kid about that level of disengagement. Likewise, if there was a level of engagement, I hope that the caseworker would have said something kind and generous about the level of engagement. But I don't know. All the time I knew the caseworkers, I, I talked to them pretty regularly, but I can't remember a lot about how that system worked exactly now because, as I mentioned, this was a number of years ago. So anyways, uh, in this particular day, I remember a kid who was fairly new in the program had come in and just gone to sleep. And class goes on. And and at this point in my life, I've learned something, right? I've learned that I could try to wake kids up when they're sleeping. I could try to make them do what I want them to do, but that doesn't really work very well. And so, what I intend to do, and what I usually do instead, is I just kind of let natural consequences take their course. So, when a kid sleeps, I do the attendance. I say they were in my room where they were supposed to be for this time, but I'll check like that they were disengaged and say slept or, or something like that. And then I just, you know, the caseworker picks it up. And, and they do their thing. And I don't know what, what they're going to do with that information, but they're going to do whatever they're going to do with it. Some case workers, I think, were more um, maybe prone to trying to correct that behavior through punishment or something. In some case, workers, I think, were rather lax and maybe less inclined to do it. I didn't know what, what, what the kid was in for when I did this. So I just kind of did my part, and then we'll see what happens after that. That was how I, I did this. So my class goes by, and this new kid, he comes in, he goes to sleep. Class comes to an end, and one of his buddies wakes him up, and uh, his his friend says to him, like, you know, Gorman's probably gonna say that you were not engaged in class today, and the kid's like, you know, um, I don't care if Gorman says that I'm wasn't engaged in class today; that doesn't bother me, you know. And the, the his buddy then's like, well, it probably should bother you because your caseworker is gonna be pissed off that you weren't engaged, and they're gonna do whatever they're gonna do, or whatever. And the kid looks at me, he's like. Are you going to say that I wasn't engaged in class today? And I said, "Well, well, yeah, you were sleeping. Of course I'm going to say you weren't engaged because you weren't." And uh okay, quick pause here. This is where the the swear curse words are about to come into this podcast, so if those are things that you don't want to hear, you don't want the people around you to hear, you should probably stop listening now because I'm about to start using naughty words and stuff. You got that? You're good. This is giving people enough time to reach the pause button. I hope so. Okay. So, jumping back into the story. You know, the kids like, "Are you going to say I wasn't engaged?" And I was like, "Yes, I'm going to say you're not engaged and the kid got really angry. He got super angry. And this kid, um, as I mentioned, he was a new kid. He came from a different kind of environment. I get the impression, I believe, that one of the ways that this kid had probably learned is an effective way to get some of your needs met is to try to be like intimidating or threatening to other people. And he, it seems as though he he tapped into that particular skill set in this moment. He looks at me and he gets really serious. He gets really serious in this moment. He looks at me and he says... What are you gonna do when I take when I pick up this desk and throw it through your motherfucking window? And he's he's I'm telling it like in this story. I don't know if it really comes across just how worked up this kid was. In fact, I'm sure it probably doesn't come across. Uh, but the kid was really mad at me in this moment. He was pissed, and he he's like now he stood up and he's like got his hands on a desk and he's near a window, and he said to me, "What are you gonna do when I pick up this desk and you know throw it through your window?" And this is, I think, him trying to be aggressive. This is him trying to be intimidating. This is him trying to scare me in some way. And there's a lot of ways I could have responded to this. There's a lot of way anybody in this situation could have responded in a bunch of different ways. You know, one way that I could have responded would be to, I think, threaten back and be like, "If you, if you do that, I am going to respond in some way. You're going to be in so much trouble. I'm going to wreck your life. You're going to get sent out of here. You're going to have to go to jail. You're going to be on probation for the rest of your life. You know, I could, I could get, I could match his level of aggressiveness with my own level of aggressiveness. That's one option. You know, option number two could be get really defensive, I think. And we all had radios here. I could have like, like, I need assistance. I need backup in my, in classroom number, whatever, crazy kid, you know, we had codes that we'd say for things like, you know, code, what was it, like, uh, I can't remember all the codes, but there was like, you know, they were colors. Like, you know, there was like a code red, a code blue, a code green, co- code white, all these different codes that you'd call. And if you heard those, that meant, you know, respond however you needed to. Um, and I could have done that, which would have meant that, you know, I'm calling for the Calvary to come in and help me out or, or something. Um, I, I could have started to... Uh, I don't know, try to reason with this kid, try to use sense and rationality and logic with him, even though, which I think would have been a bad idea because my experience has taught me, and I believe this, I believe this then, I believe this now. When you're dealing with somebody who is really emotionally volatile, somebody whose emotions have kind of gained control of their body, um, you can try to use logic. You can try to use reason to get them to calm down. It usually doesn't work that much. Um, because it's like trying to be reasonable with somebody who has lost the ability to be reasonable. That's what happens when people get emotionally compromised to the extent that this kid, I believe, was emotionally compromised. So those are all a bunch of things I could have done. Didn't do any of those. Here's what I did. I looked at the kid and I said, I actually don't know what I'm going to do if you throw that desk through that window. I have no idea. And the kid said, I am not fucking with you. I'm, what are you going to do? And I was like, I am not fucking with you either. If you do that, If you pick up that desk right here, right now, and you throw it through that window, which you can do. I think you could do that. I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no idea because no one has ever thrown a desk through my window before. That's never happened to me ever. I could tell you what I think I would do, but chances are if you actually do this, I'm just going to have to like make it up in the moment. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so this is happening. And there's an audience, by the way, like there's a bunch of other kids who are watching this whole sort of exchange take place. And um, as I do that, as I say what I said, which is like, <laughs> I have no clue what I would do if you actually pick up that desk and throw it through my window. Uh, a kid starts to laugh. One kid starts to laugh, and he's like, and and then some other kids start to laugh, and uh, the angry kid laughter like does this thing where it like I don't think he expected that something like that was going to happen. I think he expected that things were going to get I don't know crazy and rough and who knows what and instead somebody's laughing and you know the kid who was laughing was like like do you need to just like chill out because like gorman doesn't know what he's gonna do if you <laughs> pick up that desk and throw it through his motherfucking window like no one's ever done that shit before like that that's what a kid starts to say and it, it's funny it, the the situation which is like really charged all of a sudden has become like kind of silly and weird and, uh, the kid was like, all right, you know, I, dude, I was this, I, you're right. I'm not going to throw your desk through, through your window. Who, I'm I'm not crazy. Who does that? And I'm like, right, who does that? Who, it's not, it's not necessary, right? We're just going to say you weren't engaged in class and that'll be that. It'll be fine. And it's, it, 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 it kind of diffused itself. Um, so anyways, here's the point of this story, or at least what I, I'm trying to say is the point of the story. I, I could have responded a bunch of different ways. And I think if this would have happened to a younger version of myself, like the version of myself that I was when I was getting started in, you know, my choice of career, then I probably would have responded aggressively. I probably would have responded defensively. I probably would have tried to do something like reason with a kid who had become unreasonable. But instead, what I did is I, I, and I didn't think this out, by the way, this just kind of happened. I got really lucky in this instance I just responded as non-defensively as I was able to in the moment, which was to be like, I don't know what I'm going to do if you do that. I have no clue. I it's a, mm, eh, couldn't tell you because I didn't know. I didn't know what I was going to do. If he would have picked up the desk and thrown it through, through the window to this day, I don't know what I would have done. I would have been shocked. I would have been scared. Um, who knows what would have happened next in that instant? I do not. And I just said that. I owned that. I... I, I told this kid the truth in a way that I thought was hopefully not aggressive or defensive. It was just like, here's what's up in this situation. I'm responding to you and the thing that you're doing right here, right now. And um, that was that. It, and it worked. It worked really well. Now, would this work every single time? No, of course it wouldn't work every single time. Do I think that like I can handle every single situation where it might become kind of crazy and weird and violent and stuff like that? No, I don't. I think in this one instance that I'm telling you about, I did okay. I, I did a decent job at responding to a weird situation without getting aggressive and without getting defensive, and actually was non-defensive. Now, now that I've told the story, I don't. I want to kind of switch gears here. Even though the story is about a weird moment which is probably never going to happen again in my life and is probably not going to never happen in your life either you're probably not going to be in the situation that i just described i'm probably never going to be in it again that's okay because i think what the story illustrates what i hope it illustrates is the power of not doing something which we might do which is is matching somebody being aggressive by matching their level of aggression it's n- not responding to somebody who is becoming defensive because this kid saying this thing about this desk, well, I could describe it as aggressive, and I have described it as aggressive. I also think it was defensive. I think what he was doing is he was defending himself from a person who was in a position of power and authority, me. And I think that he was doing that because throughout his life prior to this instance, um, he needed to do that probably pretty often. He probably needed to frequently protect himself from other people who had power and authority and the way that he did that was by making himself scary, you know, making himself scary and uh, making himself appear really potentially violent and aggressive was for him a defensive act. And I could have responded to that defensively as well. And I just think that that would have been a bad idea. And I think that this applies to situations which are far more or not far more, pardon me, far less volatile than the one that I'm describing. Uh, There are going to be tons and tons and tons and tons of times in your life, my life, and the lives of all the people who we know, I think, where we're going to find ourselves engaging with somebody who has become defensive. And when that happens, I think that we will end up liking our lives a lot more and the people around us will probably end up liking their lives a lot more if we can get a little bit better at responding to them in a non-defensive way if we if we can do that I think things will be better that's the point of this all right so that's uh that's my story that's my point what we're going to do now here again is a little bit of transition music and when we come back I'm going to do a little bit more commentary type stuff on being non-defensive stick around So now we're back. And what I want to do in this section of the podcast is some more, I guess, just kind of general commentary on being non-defensive. And I don't think I'm going to be dropping any major big truth bombs on you or anything like that. I'm just going to try to tell you some thoughts that I had about being non-defensive. And I kind of jotted these down. I'm looking at some notes. I'm going to try to speak extemporaneously by looking at my notes and hopefully the result will not be some, you know, awful, boring, sanctimonious podcast thing. And if it is that, if it ends up turning into that, oops, I'm sorry. Uh, So here we go. First thing about being non-defensive. You know, I talk about this, I think, about non-defensiveness on a pretty regular basis because I teach. I try to teach people who want to become mental health people, you know, kind of how to become mental health people. And being non-defensive, I think, is a huge part of being an effective mental health person, an effective clinician, somebody who's going to work with people. And I say that for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason is that, you know, and I've said this on previous episodes of this podcast, I'll probably say it again in the future as well. um, I have never, never, never in all of my years in mental health ever had somebody kind of like knock on my door and be like, hey, you're a mental health dude. Can I come and tell you just how wall-to-wall awesome my life is and how I have no problems and how everything is just like, excellent constantly. That doesn't happen. Instead, uh, what I've had happen a lot is people coming to me with problems or, you know, being sent to me with with problems. And when, especially the the latter group, the people who are sent to me, not the ones who, who opt to come in on their own, but the people who are told kind of like, it's a good idea that you do this or you need to do this or you have to do this or else like those folks, like they're not in a good mood. They're going to be grouchy. They're going to be... Um, unappreciative, they're going to be at times like snarky, uh, snide, mean-spirited, aggressive, et cetera, right? And so my my thought is if you're going to encounter that kind of stuff on a regular basis, it's a good idea to you know talk about it on a regular basis when you're going through school uh, is, is the idea there. But even people who aren't going to like be mental health professionals, I'm willing to bet anything that all of you doing all the things that you might be doing also, have to deal with people who are defensive on a pretty regular basis, right? We all have to deal with this at different times. So, I talk about this a lot talk about being non defensive, talk about the value in being non defensive. And so far, I have never, ever had somebody be like, yo, that's some bullshit. Being non defensive is stupid and being defensive is awesome. You know, you can take that non defensive stuff and shove it. Like, I've never had anybody say that to me ever. Instead, usually what happens when I bring up non-defensiveness is I encounter people being like, yes, 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 tell me more. Like, let's talk about being non-defensive. Or they respond with, yeah, I totally agree with you. And let me tell you this wonderful story about when I was non-defensive, which is kind of what I just did in the previous part of this podcast, yo. Um, So yeah, that happens a lot, right? Everybody's a big fan of being non-defensive. So far, I don't know anybody who's a huge fan of being an ultra-defensive kind of reactionary jerk-off, right? That that's not something I encounter a lot. And that's good. I think that's good. The people like being non-defensive and are open to being non-defensive. But I'm worried about something with this. What I'm worried about is that we might kind of be fooling ourselves a little bit. And what I mean by that is when... If you're you're like me, right? You're somebody who probably thinks being non-defensive is a, a good skill, something that sh- which should be cultivated and nurtured. And... I think if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, if you're not careful, if we are not careful, what we might do is we might kind of fall prey to thinking of ourselves as more open-minded, more non-judgmental, more non-more self-aware, um, et cetera. And, and we'll believe ourselves capable of achieving some sort of like epic level of non-defensiveness. And if we fall into that trap, what will happen, I think, is that we'll end up finding ourselves becoming defensive a lot more often. I think that the first trick to becoming non-defensive is recognizing to the extent that we're able to just how much we enjoy being defensive because we all do. I definitely do. When I'm in a situation where somebody is, you know, criticizing me uh, or telling me something that I could have done differently or better or whatever, I get defensive. I don't like it. It's not something that I enjoy very much. And it happens often, like I um, later on, I'm gonna have to do something which is like a, an annual performance review that I have to do every year as a professor at the university that I'm at. I hate doing these things. I get extremely defensive because I have to like write up this thing, which is my own kind of like uh, appraisal of my performance and I have to give it to somebody and then we sit down and they tell me their appraisal of my performance. We, we sort of compare the two and all that. I go into that situation defensive and I have to work really hard to turn my own defensiveness down. And the reason I, I think I go into it defensive is that I enjoy defending myself in that context. I, I like being like, hey, I'm good at what I do. Don't tell me I'm not. Uh, there's other times where this comes up for me. It just This happened fairly recently. My partner had noticed that uh, when our almost two-year-old kid had woken up from a nap, uh, that he was crabby. And I um, was watching him be crabby And so like he, he was making a really big deal about the fact that he had to wait to get a cup of milk because we had to get the milk out of the fridge and pour it in his, his cup. And this, he was acting like this was a really Dickensian sort of ordeal. And I was responding to him by being like, oh, that's right. Let's be really upset that we have to wait for our milk, you know? And um, my partner saw that. And then later on, she had said something to me about it. She was like, hey, the way that you were talking to our kid was kind of Not cool. Like I didn't like it, and I was like, and and I felt myself the defensiveness just come up, and I wanted to be like, "Oh, come on, you do stuff like that too," which you know, in fairness, she does, but um, because all parents do, all parents sometimes like say, kind of uh, not the best thing to their kid, and and I and I felt my I felt that coming up. Like I wanted to, to. She told me I had done something that was kind of not so good, and my response was to start that, that defensiveness got heated up and it started to to boil. And I wanted to then point out all the things that I thought she might've done that weren't so good. Uh, And I, the reason is again, that there's a, there's a satisfaction built into being defensive. It's natural, I think, to be defensive. And so let's kind of put these two ideas together. Idea number one, we like the idea I'm high, I tell us I that word we like the idea of being non-defensive however the reality is that we also enjoy a whole bunch being defensive you know there when when we defend ourselves against accusations that we think are unjust or undeserved or you know whatever we're into that like there's there's a feeling that goes with that and it it feels I think kind of good invigorating exhilarating etc and so what what i'm trying to say here is let's not get too caught up in the story in the idea in the fantasy of ourselves as super non-defensive people although that's a very appealing thing to do let's always try to to the extent that we can remember just how much we really love being defensive people because we do And that doesn't make us bad, that doesn't make us monsters, that doesn't make us evil or anything like that. It makes us human. We're all human, you, me, everybody we know, and we're going to be defensive. Be that as it may, I do think that one of the things that we can do is try to bring down what our baseline level of defensiveness on a kind of like day-to-day basis. I do think that we can decrease that, but I, I think that doing so requires a commitment to trying in the different ways that we can to be non-defensive, uh, to, to kind of, you know, start off thinking about it, trying to get in, in the mode for that. And then, you know, when we're in situations where we catch ourselves being defensive, you know, retroactively to look back at them, recognize what we've done, uh, got defensive, and then try to respond accordingly to those things. These are things that I think are really important. So that is it for now. I feel like I have told you a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I'm glad that you've taken the time to listen to this. I appreciate it so very much. Um, I am Neil Gorman. This is The Gorman Limit, episode number 008 that you've been listening to. We've talked about defensiveness. Hopefully you found it interesting or useful or both. And, uh, whatever you're about to go do now, now that the podcast is over, I hope that you have fun while you do it. I hope that you make some glorious mistakes. I hope that you can live your life in a way where you can say, damn the demand and save the desire. And, uh, yeah, that's it till next time, folks. Take care.